shall we all pray? Let us pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we thank thee that we have found here in thy presence this day. We thank thee for answered prayer, for thy providence that has guided our footsteps, that we from so many different places are brought together in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee for the knowledge that it is not our doing, but thou hast come to us to seek and to save. We thank thee for answered prayer this week, for bringing us together from these many places, for what we have heard, that we have been in a wealthy place, and we pray that we would know thy continuing presence, and that more and more we would be able to glorify thee and to love our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray, at this hour. Pardon our every sin. Receive our thanks and praise. For Jesus' sake. Amen. The subject I have been given for this session has to do with attacks on the Word of God. Attacks on the Word of God. As I was sitting with you in the previous session, you know thoughts come into your mind, and I thought to myself, these sessions this morning are out of order. Um, we should have had the first session last, because we were high up, weren't we? We went to heavenly places. And now we come down to what is earthly to attacks on the Word of God. But then, thankfully, I could dismiss that thought because, really, this is the order in our experience that things happen to us. We can be quite sure that if God speaks to us and we are helped and strengthened, the next thing, very soon, will be some sort of assault on us because of the Word that has come to us. Tax on the word of God, great reality, and they follow being in high places. Now, it's wonderful how God brings books into our hands at the very time we so often need them. I'm sure many of you have found that. It happened to me on one occasion in February in the year 1954. I was a student at Durham University. And I was having a first-hand experience for the first time of attack on the Word of God. University that had once been Christian, where men had honored the truth, had fallen onto very different days. And what came to me at that, in that time, in that year, was a book, and it was called A Critical History of free thought in reference to the Christian religion. Critical history of free, that really is unbelieving thought, in reference to the Christian religion. The book was published in 1862. It was written by Adam Farrer. And it was a part of a series of the Bampton Lectures in Oxford, a famous series of lectures. And the date, as you, a number of you will know, 1862, was before the onslaught on the Word of God in our English-speaking countries. It's only just beginning. And this book stood firmly on Scripture. And it was 700 pages of summaries of, through the centuries, of attacks on the Word of God. Well, what I learned as a young student at that point was... Attacks on the word of God are as old as fallen man. And to understand those attacks is really a key to understanding history. Why was it that uh, Israel, God's ancient people, were so attacked? It was because they were uniquely different in being given revelation from heaven. 
God gave his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any other nation. What advantage then has the Jew, says the apostle, chiefly, chiefly, firstly, because unto them were given the oracles of God. What follows? The assault upon Israel is because of their connection with that divine revelation. Now that is true right through history. The apostolic age, beginning of 300 years of persecution. What was the cause of the persecution? John on the island of Patmos says it was for the word of God. Apostle Paul says, we are delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. He's talking about his experience of suffering for the God. Why? Why? Because of the word of God that he carried. The book of Revelation tells us of the dead who were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So as you go on through history, the story continues. Great Reformation. We were talking yesterday, hearing of William Tyndale, burnt to death in 1536. Why? Not because of anything particular about him, but he was attached to the Word of God. He translated the Word of God into the English language. That's the reason why he was put to death. Twenty years later, Tyndale's friend John Rogers was on trial for his life in London. The same offense. He had been a translator of scripture. He had distributed scripture. And uh, examined before Bishop Gardner, his Roman Catholic judge, the judge demanded that he would instance any occasion where the Roman church acted contrary to scripture. Rogers immediately pointed to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the fact that the word of God was not given to the people in their own language. And that led uh, his judge to tell him, you can prove nothing by scripture. The scripture is dead and needs a lively exposition. Oh no, says Rogers, the scripture is alive. And then another bishop interrupted. The Bishop of Worcester said, Nay, nay, he said, All heretics have alleged the scriptures for them, and therefore we must have a living exposition. Which means, of course, that the church must determine the truth. The church will tell you what you have to believe. A few days later, Rogers wrote a last word of testimony, and he said, God's word shall not perish in one tittle, but all will be fulfilled and performed that is contained therein. And unto it must all men, kings and queens, emperors and parliaments and general, accounts, general councils obey. And the word obeyeth no man, it cannot be changed or altered, neither may we add or put anything thereto, nor take nothing therefrom. And a few days later, on February the 4th, 1555, John Rogers was burned at Smithfield in London. Go on another hundred years into the Puritan period. Northern Ireland, 1620s, one of the records of a wonderful period of revival. Hundreds converted, powerful preaching, fiction of sin, then liberty, 1620s. But 20 years later, that very area suffered a great persecution. It was a Roman Catholic rising, instigated by priests and <coughs> thousands of people, Christians, were put to death. And somebody who was a witness at that period said this, they said the Bible, in a particular manner, was the object on which the Romanists vented their detestation 
of the truth. They have torn it in pieces. They have kicked it up and down, treading it underfoot, leaping and trampling on it, and saying a plague on it. This book has bred all our quarrels. Attacks on the word of God. Now, the attack in the Reformation Puritan period came very largely from a false church. And it came frequently in the form of physical persecution. But in the 18th century, very different. Oh, attacks, yes, but attacks this time from the world and from philosophy and from people who profess to believe in God. But what they also detested was the God of the Bible. So we read of Voltaire, one of the leaders of that whole movement. It was written that the sole, the sole object of his efforts was to destroy belief in the plenary inspiration of Scripture and the divine origin of Revelation. There is hardly a book in Scripture that he did not attack. He tried to show absurdities and contradictions in them all. Voltaire, Thomas Paine, Age of Reason, Rights of Man, books sold far widely on both sides of the Atlantic. And Paine said, I have gone through the Bible as a man goes through a wood with an axe in his hand and I have chopped them down. And he said, there's no priest in the world. They may replant them, but these truths will never grow again. Another form of attack. Now, coming now to the area of attack that I want to concentrate on this morning. More devastating than what happened in the 18th century and more longer lasting because we are living in the effects of it and many men are suffering under those effects and it's a more subtle attack in the way I want to speak about it insofar as as it arose it didn't come in the form of an attack at all it came this time under the guise of being for the Bible and for Christianity. That's how it came. Now, you're familiar with the 19th century background. It was an age of great increase in knowledge, for which we have cause to be thankful. whole area of medicine, many other areas in the providence of God advances in understanding. But there were those, of course, who came in and said, all this advance is part of the onward evolutionary march of mankind. We are, of course, progressing. And that same idea was transferred into the religious sphere, and men began to say that uh, geology has shown us that the Genesis account cannot possibly be true. Uh, others said, well, you know, we have learned that people didn't even know how to write in the time of Moses and no way the Pentateuch could have been given from Moses. All sorts of new things came in. And when they first came in, and this is important to notice, how did Christians react? By and large, they reacted with rejection. They said, this is, this is just unbelief, which it was. But Twenty years later, 1880s, something else came in, and this is where we're heading this morning. What was now said was that we shouldn't be too dismayed that it is true that there's been big advances in scholarship and that the best way to defend Christianity now, and that's what they wanted to do, that's what they said, the best way to defend it is to fall back on the real substance of the scriptures. Don't, don't be too concerned about smaller details or here or there, but uh, the big thing, the heart of the matter, the, the kernel. Let's, let's be sure to defend that and concentrate on that and that will 
put the whole Christian position on a firmer basis. And the name that was given to the men who, or the name they took themselves, who were promoting this idea, was the new apologetic. It was an apologetic, not for unbelief, but an apologetic for Christianity. And that's what we're especially looking at, and then narrowing it down further, I want to look at it in terms of more or less of one particular church, uh, because this church was the sort of powerhouse from which these ideas were diffused across the whole English-speaking world. And the powerhouse was the Free Church of Scotland. Some of you know the history well. In the year 1843, the Church of Scotland split and some 500 ministers formed the Free Church of Scotland. It was a church that was born out of evangelical revival. It was born out of preaching. It was a great missionary church. The church was hardly formed when missionaries were being sent across the earth. It was renowned for the saintliness of a number of its leaders and their books. 1843. Now go on another 40 years. The amazing thing is that this new apologetic arose in this church. This was the church that became the great distributor of the new thinking. Now, I don't want to confuse you. I know some of you know these names well, but others it might be new to, and if I start quoting lots of names, uh, you will soon be confused. I only want to quote three. These are three men who will help you to get a picture of what was happening. The first name was William Robertson Smith. Robertson Smith. Student in Edinburgh, student also in Germany, brilliant linguist, did his divinity training in Edinburgh, ordained to the ministry, and was so outstanding that something happened that had never happened before in Scotland. At the age of 23, he was made professor of Hebrew in the University of Aberdeen. He seemed to have all manner of gifts, not simply languages, but eloquence, scholarship, Robertson Smith. He died, well, I should give you, say briefly, he quickly became an author. Items appeared in his books that caused concern. It was noted somewhere that he said he didn't believe in angels or in demons. Finally, he was uh, tried before the church. Uh, the church vacillated. He was suspended from his position on full pay. He, he died at the age of 47, uh, having moved to Cambridge. William Robertson Smith led the way. He was followed by Marcus Dodds. Marcus Dodds, preacher, professor as he became of theology, published a sermon in 1877 on inspiration and revelation in which he advanced the thinking that I've already mentioned we need, he said, we need to hold on to the central truths there are some things in the uh, scriptures that we can't defend, he would say and which we don't need to defend and he went on openly to uh, deny the inspiration of scripture. In fact, he said a little later on, he said, a, he said the, a theory of inspiration has made the Bible an offense to honest men. That's verbal plenary inspiration. It's dishonoring to God, he said. A theory that should be branded heretical. He was tried by the church and he was cleared. He went on to become a very influential figure. Mention him again, Marcus Dodds. A third man briefly, George Adam Smith. When William Robertson Smith was suspended at Aberdeen, Adam Smith was the man who came in to replace him. Then became a pastor, 
then became an Old Testament professor, wrote famous book on the, on the Palestine and many other things, and he continued this whole teaching. Now, the important thing is this. Why did these men have such influence? And there were others that could be named, numbers of others. But they very quickly dominated the church to which they belonged. And why did they do it? Well, one reason was that at first sight, their orthodoxy was impeccable. They were all self-designated evangelicals. Marcus Dodd says that he was primarily an evangelist, although he was a professor of New Testament. Robertson Smith was called a humble, loyal servant of the church. George Adam Smith, the third man, he said that what they were aiming at was to provide a basis of faith more stable than ever the old was imagined to be, to richer minds of Christian experience, better vantage grounds for preaching the gospel of Christ. Well, I could give you other quotations. These men came forward in the name of the gospel. Secondly, and this is reasons why they got acceptance, secondly, they were able young men and the idea was propagated that the opposition that they encountered, and they did encounter some, was from the older generation, the traditionalists, I like that word. But tomorrow, the future lies with the younger generation. We understand the, the modern mind. That's a word they like. The modern mind, as though the human mind has changed at a certain point in history. But they, they came across as men who were going to lead the future. And for a time, it looked as though they were. They, they had immense influence. And what else? Well, this is the heart of their persuasiveness. What they said was that we are going to bring the churches and the people closer to Christ. Because, well, they said, look at it like this. We're all travelers on a journey. Spiritual life is a journey. We need signposts to guide us on the way. Thank God, they said. That's where the Bible comes in. The Bible is a signpost to direct us on the way. Oh yes, but they said, we've got something even better than that. We not only have a signpost in the Bible, but we have a living guide himself. We don't have a book that comes between us and Christ. We have Christ himself to take us and lead us forward. Now, believe me, these men were preachers and able men, and very persuasively, the idea was passed round that there's something in this. And it's amazing the evangelical men who went down before this thinking. Just mention one. William Fullerton. Who was William Fullerton? Well, a number of you have read his biography of Spurgeon. He was one of Spurgeon's brightest students. And when Spurgeon died in 1892, Fullerton was one of the right-hand men. But go on to 1925. In 1925, a man called T.R. Glover was made president of the Baptist Union. Who was Glover? He was a scholar, a teacher. And he was a man who said, verbal inspiration is a monstrous belief. And in reality, Glover was a Unitarian. And he was utterly opposed to a blood at atonement, as he called it. And yet, Fullerton, when this man was made president of the Baptist Union, Fullerton is present, and he says, he's a prophet that God has sent among us. Well, I mention that simply to indicate that error is a very persuasive thing when it's presented as it was presented at this period. 
And it struck me more and more how vital that statement of the Apostle Paul is. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost that dwelleth in us. If we say, oh well, sad to hear about these men, but we're not likely to be carried away by anything like that. Oh no, 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 we're too well grounded. My friend, never speak like that. If the Holy Spirit should not keep us, there's no one here who couldn't be carried away. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We need to be kept. We can't keep ourselves. So let's move on. What is the fatal mistake in the thinking that was put forward? The thinking was, let's take the heart of the matter, let's hold on to the heart of the matter, let's not be too concerned about secondary things that are in the Bible. But, uh, and they, they, they were quite open. They said, the Bible is infallible. Oh, yes. But not all the Bible is infallible. It's the, it's the heart of it that we're going to defend. Well, the question obviously is, which part is the part which is the kernel? And which part is the Word of God? Until this point in history, evangelicals faced only one question. The question was, what does the Word of God say? But now the new question was, what part of Scripture is the Word of God? Now, when that question was put forward, at first sight it looked comparatively easy to answer. They would say something like this, well, things like Noah's flood and Jonah in the belly of a great fish and, uh, and the authorship of the book of Daniel. Um, uh, these are more incidental things. These aren't the heart of the matter. Well, that doesn't last very long because the question follows very quickly. But the Lord Jesus Christ authenticated every one of those points. He spoke of Jonah. He believed in Noah's flood. He believed in the authorship of the book of Daniel. So that raises another question. What do we say about our, the testimony of Christ? Now this week we've had, haven't we, and how we've all needed it and valued it, the testimony of our Lord to the all-sufficiency of the word of God written. But when the objection was brought forward how much of Christ is to believe to be believed here are people who were saying uh, we're going to take the heart of the truth of the gospel we're not going to believe this or that but Christ believed it well they said and it's the only thing they could say we, we, we don't accept everything that Christ said so when our Lord said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away, uh, they, they edited that to mean uh, s some of my words will not pass away. <laughs> oh, fools and slow of hearts is our Lord to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They dropped the word all. We, we, we believe some of the things that Christ said. Now, there's another question. How do you determine which then of all the things he said, which are the things we can trust in and believe in? And that led to a great furore of discussion, especially among the German theologians. Who is the historic Jesus? That's the word they like. A quest for the historic Jesus. If we can pinpoint the historic Christ, we'll be able to pinpoint the words that we know are his. So Germany gave endless time to that discussion. And this is how it finished. One of the leaders of the so-called quest was a man called Strauss. And later on, his, on in his life, he said, it may be doubted indeed whether, whether a real knowledge of the historical Jesus may now be possible. That's what it came to. We don't know. We don't know. Caspar Wister Hodge, Princeton Seminary professor, reviewing Marcus Dodds. Marcus Dodds uh, said he was willing to give up Scripture so long as the Christ is preserved for us. 
And Hodge says, but which Christ? Was it to be Marcus Dodd's Christ? What about the Christ that Vernal, Vernal gives us, or Vreed, or Oscar Holtzman, or Auguste Sabatier, or Brandt, or Harnack? Which Christ of the fallible Bibles will ultimately we be forced to put up with? In other words, he wasn't one Christ at all, but a whole train of false Christs. Now here's the conclusion that Marcus Dodds came to as an old man. Confidence of youth has gone. All his big assertions of the earlier years. And about the year 1907, he wrote this in a private letter to a friend. He wrote, The churches won't know themselves 50 years hence. It is to be hoped that some little rag of faith will be left when all is done. What a statement. What had the new apologetic done? It had brought things down to a rag of faith. A few words from men, godly men, who saw the danger. There weren't many of them, but there were some. And one was Dr. Moody, Dr. Moody Stewart, who had been McChain's pastor many years earlier. Moody Stewart wrote, The word of the Lord is pure, and out of this trial it will come forth in all its brightness, as silver out of the furnace. But meanwhile, an unutterable calamity may overtake us. For our children may lose the one treasure we were bound to bequeath to them. And for long years they may wander through dry places seeking rest and finding none before they recover their hold on the word of life. Woody Stewart. Or Horatius Bonner, briefly. He's talking about the spread of unbelief like leaven. It acts like some chemical solvent loosening the whole spiritual frame, conscience, mind, and will. The extent of the mischief, he says, no one can calculate. A soul without faith, a church without faith, a nation without faith, a world without faith, what is to be their future? What is their present? When faith goes, all things go. When unbelief comes in, all evil things follow. I grew up in a church that was a splendid building. Big red sandstone building. It had been opened in the year 1900 to hold a good thousand people with other buildings and halls. And who was there to preach at the opening ceremony? It was George Adam Smith. And where is that church now? It's an empty, deserted building. Why? Because Bible preachers left long ago. And Bible believers left. And today it's just an empty shell of a splendid building with the doors shut on the Lord's Day. And that is a picture of many, many churches all over the British Isles at present. Jeremiah says they've taken away the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. Oh, he said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears that I might weep for the slain daughter of my people day and night. That's what we have to do. The evil one came in, and this is the result. I could spend longer on that, but I mustn't do that. But I must say this, that the disaster that hit Britain then spread worldwide. You see, as I mentioned earlier on, that free church of Scotland was a great, people said, apostolic church. Its missionaries were outstanding men. It had a name across the mission field. When this unbelief came in, what happened? 
It killed the roots of missionary endeavor. The missionary movement dwindled down. Now, come the 1920s, an attempt was made to halt unbelief in the mission field. One of the oldest missionary societies in Britain was the Church Missionary Society. And in 1922, an appeal was made to the board of that mission that no missionaries should be sent out who did not commit themselves to the full trustworthiness of Holy Scripture. It was refused. They took no action. Almost at the same time, the same thing was happening here in the United States. Gresham Machen, in 1932, acted with the New Brunswick Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, appealed to the, the missions board of the denomination. And the appeal was the same as the other one I've just mentioned. There should be no one on the mission board. And missionaries shouldn't be sent out unless they're committed to the authority of Scripture. Now, some of you know the story well, but it's a terrible story. Machen documented his concerns, 110 pages, about what was happening particularly in China. That in China, missionaries were going out who denied the resurrection of our Lord. One of the instances he gave was of liberal literature that the mission board was approving or letting go. In one of the books, uh, the story is given as a, a mother who was teaching, um, teaching her child from the Old Testament and she came across the passage where the Amalekites were being destroyed. She evidently felt very uncomfortable about it and she said to her daughter, she said that this is progressive revelation. That now, she said, now in Jesus we are told to love our enemies and do good to them that hate us. Well, the girl uh, was kind of puzzled at this and then she said to her mother, and this is what this book is approving, the girl said to her mother, now I understand Back here, that's the Old Testament, back here, that was before God was a Christian. <laughs> Machen put all this information into the hands of the Foreign Missions Board. What did they do? Nothing. Nothing at all. So then Machen went ahead, formed another missionary agency within the church. At that point, the assembly did do something. They commanded him to disband that other missionary society and that no church member was to be a member of it. He refused. They silenced him. They defrocked him. They put him out of the ministry. What was happening in China was that men in China were saying, don't send us any missionaries that are fundamentalists. Send us people with this modern knowledge. So Machen was quite clearly wouldn't have been welcomed in China, but he wasn't welcomed in his own denomination. He was put out. Now, I must hurry on. What was this controversy all about? Now, the opponents would say, this controversy is all about this theory of verbal inspiration and so on. And on one side are the traditionalists, on the other side are the new apologetic. That's a completely false description of the controversy. You know, it wasn't so much, wasn't so much the doctrine of verbal inspiration that offended them. What offended them was what this verbally inspired Bible taught. That's what offended They did not like what the scripture said about God, about sin, about the way of salvation. That's the heart of the attack. The other was, oh yes, the other came into it. But at the root of it, this was the real objection. And uh, that's the continuing position today. The natural man has no heart for Scripture. He doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't wish to believe it. Why should he believe that a book that contradicts his own good opinion about himself. None righteous, no, not one. None that understandeth. Of course, 
the unregenerate mind will not accept the word of God. So at the heart, and I must move on, at the heart of this attack was hatred of the gospel itself. And uh, the new apologetic, apologetic men had said, how can we make the Bible acceptable to the world at large? How can we do it? They gave the wrong answer. There is a way to make the Bible acceptable to the world, and you know what it is. It's to cut out everything that humbles man. Cut out everything supernatural. Suppress what is said about God's judgment, and so on. And you've got no Bible left, of course. And that's what happened with the new apologetic. There was no real message left. Now... This, to me, perhaps is the biggest point that I'm coming to now. These men who introduced these falsehoods, were they planning, planning to do what, they, what history has shown they actually did? Empty churches? Stop missionary societies? Were they planning that? I don't really believe that they were. I think something worse was happening. They were unconsciously being deluded by the God of this world. They were being led by someone whose existence they didn't actually believe. Because that's part, that is part of the whole thinking of that period. Demons, devils, Satan, no. The idea that Satan is in revolt against God, no, they had no time for that at all. Try the spirits, whether they be of God. No, there's no place for that. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. That's true. Now let me give you two marks of the devil's working. All these centuries of history... All these different attacks, but you know the devil's fingerprints show up in very similar ways. And there are two particular ways I must underline. The first is this. The devil is always wanting us to idolize men. What's the best way to overthrow the truth? Promote men. Praise men. Oh yes. And you know that's not a difficult thing to do because the poison of pride has followed from the fall. And pride is the chief engine that the devil uses. John Owen has a wonderful book, The Nature and Causes of Apostasy from the Gospel. What is the cause of apostasy? Number one, pride. And what does pride do? Pride elevates men, flatters men, applauds men. That's what happened in Germany, happened in Scotland. I told you, these men were very able men. And their friends told them that. Their friends flattered them and uh, if they had wanted endorsements for their books, they could have got them by the cartload. They were... That's a very dangerous thing. It's a danger in every circle. Maybe I could just throw in here, you know, we, we've come from many different countries, haven't we? 17 countries, and we go back with many, many blessings and benefits and reports and uh, encouragements and examples. But if I might just say, there is one thing that uh, in some of our countries, we don't clap sermons or preachers. Just don't do that. We can't imagine the Apostle Paul was clapped or the, the Apostle John. And... Uh, some of you don't have the blessing of being able to be here in this pulpit or, or in the congregation on Sunday morning. You won't hear clapping and applauding here when service is conducted on the Lord's Day. I simply throw it in. Don't let any young man here go back to a far-off country and say, this is what we've got to do. I, I think while we learn so much from some of you, not absolutely everything is to be followed. <laughs> Now, uh, (laughs) 
I don't, I don't, uh, I don't usually go in for jokes in the pulpit, but uh, I'll tell you one thing. In, uh, in, in, in 23, we celebrated the birth of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton. It's a memorable occasion, a very happy occasion. But the only thing that wasn't happy was that I could not get it into the heads of these people that we don't clap after we've heard addresses on Jonathan Edwards and these things. They couldn't get the point. And uh, even on the last address, uh, they did it again. And it was too much for me. I got up and said, that's exactly what caused 1775. You won't do what you're told. (laughs) Now... Believe me, believe me, brethren, that's not really funny. It is, a seri- it, is a serious, it is a serious point. It is a serious point. A good, faithful minister doesn't want to be applauded. Scripture, scripture doesn't applaud men. All good comes down from God. And uh, we live in a man-pleasing celebrity age. And that can ruin churches, does ruin churches. Lord, down we are, the better. Now, time is fast running out, and I'm, I have to pass over the next point, but I'll give it to you just to think about. The devil works by, by idolizing men, lifting them up. Secondly, by the evasive, devious. He doesn't come in his own dress. He comes, that, you, you know the point, but, but it comes out in history so clearly. I want to move to my conclusions quickly. My first conclusion was we've got to recognize it's a very serious mistake when a line isn't firmly drawn between those who bow submissively to the whole testimony of Scripture and those who do not. That's the big dividing line. Any movement that blurs that line is destructive of the faith and the gospel. Maybe not immediately, but it will be. Hold the line clearly. Lloyd-Jones says, there is a call today to separation. It is the only distinction in the church which I recognize, namely, those who submit to the word of God and its revelation and its teaching and those who do not. My last point then is this. The things we're dealing with this week and talking about we are really talking about the supernatural. Opposition to the word of God, that doesn't begin with Dr. So-and-so. Or what, oh, no, it doesn't begin there at all. begins with the powers of darkness. Not against flesh and blood are we fighting. And therefore the great lesson is we have to respond with supernatural power. We cannot defend the faith simply by words or by books or even by conferences. We need power from heaven. The kingdom of God, says the apostle, is not in word but in power. And that illustration in Acts 6, uh, 19 is so striking, isn't it? Here uh, some Jews are watching the apostles and the blessing of what's happening and the sons of Sceva think that they'll try their hand at this and here's a man who's oppressed with the devil and the sons of Sceva come in and they, uh, they, they, they say I, we adjure thee by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Paul who preaches and what happened? The man with the evil spirit jumped on them and they fled. And the spirit said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? In other words, if we are standing in a spiritual battle that's not against flesh and blood, we must have spiritual power. And that means we have to be humble, prayerful men committed to the word of God. John Bunyan says it so perfectly, doesn't he, when he says, who are the people that are delivered from attack and temptation? He that is down need fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. That's what we need to be. And my last word, you know, it's a tremendous encouragement to me to be here and meet so many of you, see so many young men. Oh, my friends, you younger men, wonderful privilege to have a life before you 
trust by God's help to serve him. Don't be distracted. Don't, don't be drawn onto secondary things. We will give ourselves, Acts 6, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If we are helped to do that, that is a supreme thing. Want a resolution? I give it to you as I close. The words of John Wesley. I am, he says, a creature of a day, passing through life like an arrow through the air. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me that way. For this very end, he came down from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it, he says. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Let us take that prayer. Let us be men of one book. Shall we pray? O Lord, our gracious God, we do unite our hearts to thank and praise thee for the mercies that have come to us. We thank thee above all for faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou didst ever open our blind eyes and hearts to know thee and to be called into the kingdom of thy dear Son. O Lord, we pray that thou wouldst go before us each one. We thank thee for all who are present for so many churches and congregations and mission fields here in this vast country and in other lands. Lord, we would be men of thy word. Help us, keep us from temptation. Make us strong, we pray. And grant us more and more of the enlightenment and the endowment of the Holy Spirit. We thank thee, Lord, that when we go to our several ways that this pulpit stands and this church remains and we give thanks to thee for our dear brethren who serve thee here and for thy servant the pastor. We pray, Lord, thy abundant help would be given to them that the work of God would go forward and that we would see a time of true awakening more and more in our land. Hear our cry and cleanse us, we pray, from every sin. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.